This is Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast with John Bacon. This is the place where people from all walks of life share their anxiety stories to remind you that you are not alone. If you have an anxiety story you'd like to share, contact us at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. I am John Bateman and welcome to Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast, which can be found at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. My guest today is Pega Malahajan. She's a 25-year-old Iranian-Canadian woman who recently completed her master's degree in public health at the University of Toronto. She first experienced anxiety as a child, but didn't necessarily have the agency or resources to understand what it was or how to cope with it. Since accessing more resources and participating in the Anxiety Canada MindShift groups, she's been able to successfully understand, cope with, and challenge her anxiety. She has since joined Anxiety Canada's Youth Ambassador Team for the 2021-22 season. Now, joining us for the first time in this podcast, which I'm very excited about, um, we're going to have a clinician whose name is Dr. Marlene Tobe-Shift. Dr. Tobe-Shift has been a registered psychologist for over 15 years, and her clinical work is focused on the delivery of scientific-supported treatments for obsessive, compulsive, and related disorders, anxiety disorders, depression, related issues, as well as a wide range of emotional and behavioral problems. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for having me, John. I'm so excited, and it's so lovely to meet both of you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this, too. So, uh, Pega, we'll start it out as we always started out by having you tell us your anxiety story. Okay, great. So my anxiety story began when I was pretty young. I think I had my first um, actual panic attack when I was about seven or eight years old. And the challenge with experiencing anxiety from such a young age is that I didn't have the education or vocabulary to tell my family and my peers what I was going through. And that was really tough. It meant I kept a lot of it to myself. And because of that, I developed some really strong avoidance behaviors. So I tried to avoid things that I thought might trigger a panic attack. And that really uh, impacted my life. So I stopped going to um, restaurants with my family. I hated eating out. I stopped looking forward to field trips. Basically leaving the house for me was very difficult as a child and well into my adolescence. And once my family kind of picked up on something that was wrong. Um, they took me to many doctor appointments because they assumed that what I had was, you know, a physical issue. Like there was something wrong with me physically. And um, when that was ruled out, basically uh, they told me that I, I was experiencing anxiety. And unfortunately it didn't lead to any formal treatment. I was still really pretty young. Like I was like 10 or 11 years old and um, it, it was really hard. I didn't really get the support I needed. I, from what I understand, um, they, they hesitate to give children anxiety medication. So that wasn't really an option, um, either, um, for me at the time anyway. And so basically I struggled with this well into my adolescence and it got a little bit better when I moved out to university. Cause I was like forced to, um, do things that were out of my comfort zone. And I learned that that was going to be okay. So it got a little bit better, but, looking back, because I didn't receive formal treatment, I did have um, various moments of relapse, uh, even throughout university as a young adult. And I had my biggest relapse 
during the first year of the pandemic. Um, obviously a very stressful time for everybody. Um, my whole life changed. I moved to a different city. I, I had to change my job. And I thought at that moment, that was kind of my breaking point. I thought, I can't do this anymore. There has to be something out there that can help me like this. I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I stumbled upon the um, mind shift uh, CBT groups that Anxiety Canada was offering virtually at the time. So did and you just, sorry, sorry to quickly interrupt, did you just, yeah. did you just find that through an organic search online? Like, did you search your symptoms or did somebody put you onto that? I just searched it. It was on the internet. They had, um, I believe they were advertising it on Instagram at the time, which is actually, I think, where I first saw it. And I thought, okay, this can't hurt. It was very access- accessible. And it was eight weeks and it was like a group um, program. And so I got to meet others and it honestly changed my life. It was the biggest turning point in my anxiety journey. And I will be forever grateful to Anxiety Canada for those courses because um, it was the first time that I didn't have to explain what was happening to me. And also I didn't have to explain how much it was disrupting my life that it wasn't just like stress. It was like, um, you know, significantly impacting my life. And they understood that and they gave me like excellent strategies to cope with it. So that's a little bit about um, me and my anxiety journey. Yeah. Um, Dr. Tobe Schiff, how common is it for, you know, how, how common is this, is, is this in kids? nowadays or, or oh, even I you know mean, period throughout 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 you know the last 30 40 years well for sure i mean i think um as Pega's story highlights so well um you know things can be very underdiagnosed even though they're present and we know that anxiety disorders can appear quite young very similar i think to your your story right in terms of developing it as a child um and it being maintained in some way kind of off and on or like kind of a waxing and waning throughout one's adolescence and then re-emerging in the light of like very significant um stressors i do think early, we know now for sure early intervention is so important um you know peg as you were saying like i didn't really have formal treatment right like no one offered me these skills and strategies when i was younger um yeah. and I, i'm sure given the way you almost informally were engaging in, you know, exposure therapy when you were off yes. university, right? And you were pushing yourself to do things. And I love how you said it. You're like, I saw that everything was okay, which is like the message mm-hmm. that we try to help people with in therapy. But to have that motivation to go and try things that are so difficult can sometimes be really hard without some kind of support, be it um, professional or as you're mentioning, you know, Anxiety Canada, group treatment, peer support, those kinds of things can be very helpful in terms of getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering about that, like in terms of, uh, well, I, I guess that one of the things I'd like to to kind of look into a little bit, because I was probably around the same age, like maybe like 11 or 12, my first panic attack. And I had, I had um, sort of before that, I had stomach troubles and I had temper tantrums and I had all that. So Pega, like um, first you, I'm wondering, what kind of, you know, symptoms you experienced, you know, even when you're that age, what what were the physical symptoms that you're experiencing? Yeah, that's a great question, John. Um, I totally relate to the stomach issues. That was the biggest um, one for me. It was nausea, stomach aches that kind of just were spontaneous and had no, there was no medical reason why I should be experiencing it. Um, Because I, I did go to the doctor so many times and they just you know, come, we're coming up empty handed. Um, a big one for me was a racing heart, a racing heart. And I would also get yeah. very hot and I felt right. like what I would do actually 
when I was pretty young, I would take ice cubes and um, put them down my shirt or Mm. put it on my face. And I, that was kind of another coping strategy I had um, that I developed kind of, uh, kind of, I don't know, spontaneously. And it, it helped a little bit, but those were some of the symptoms that I was experiencing. Yeah, well, no kidding. I mean, that sounds like, you know, that that switching your sensory perception over to yeah. something else. I mean, is that something that's that's common, uh, Marlene, in, in how people are treated nowadays? I mean, we do consider that to be an effective kind of distress tolerance strategy. So there is that idea of really dramatically kind of altering your physical um, kind of state, right? So in terms of like, literally, I mean, you were doing that probably out of desperation um, the first few times that you did it, right? Yeah. But kind of, we do actually talk to people about using ice cubes, putting them on your skin, um, allowing your body kind of temperature to come down can actually be very effective in terms of bringing ourselves back to baseline. Um, I live in in Toronto, so right now it's gorgeous out, but we have winter and it gets mm, very cold. Yeah. Mm. So when I do see people um, in the winter time, sometimes we even talk about like, opening a window, getting like a cold blast of fresh air. It's not a long-term strategy by any means, but it can take the edge off when someone feels really dysregulated or that their emotions are totally out of control. And then it gives you that opportunity to figure out like, what do I want to do? How do I want to, you know, manage that situation? Because when we're in that zone where our emotions have really just run away from us, it's very difficult um, to think straight, to make decisions that we want to make to push ourselves in ways that we want. So we need some of those distress tolerance strategies as well. The fact that you found them um, on your own, I think again, is another you know testament to how you were looking for ways to be able mm. to uh, push through what unfortunately people weren't giving you strategies for, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, when I when I first went through my my first anxiety panic attack, I'd say, um, my, my mother told me, you know, years later that she, basically knew it was going to come like she knew I was going to start having some kind of anxiety issues so you know this is like we're talking 1978 so like I'm I feel like I'm very lucky that my mother was enlightened to the point so I mean I got to a psychiatrist believe it or not like when I was about 13 um, which is really unusual especially for that era um, you know what I'm curious about Pega is um, with with you like how was it with your parents like how did they react and and you know I find it really compelling that, I mean, I don't know your age, but I find it really interesting. You know, we hear about people slipping through cracks in in the medical system and and it often happens. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it often seems to happen when you have that first contact with a GP or with a doctor and with that professional. So I'm wondering what your, what that journey was like with your parents or with your caregivers at the time. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm 25 years old. Mm. um, And I think my parents honestly didn't know like what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I come from a culture, you know, I'm Iranian. Mental health isn't always an easy conversation in my culture. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, perhaps I wasn't, you know, given maybe the right resources at the time. And it's not that they didn't see, they could see I was in distress, but they would just kind of tell me to ride out the wave and they became um, more complacent in letting me uh, avoid certain things that were a trigger for me. For sure. And that's kind of how, I mean, they still tried to take me to the doctor. And um, I remember, I think I was about 14 years old when I went to the doctor with my, um, my mom and we were kind of explaining the situation. And 
I remember telling the doctor, you know, I, I run for fun and I was part of the cross country team in high school. And um, I remember my doctor telling me running can actually stimulate the fight or flight response. And she told me to stop running. And oh. I will never forget that because now in hindsight, I'm just like, I don't get that advice and I could be missing something totally, but that was a short-term <laughs> solution in my mind. And also, you know, not really effective and also taking away something I really enjoyed. So I don't know if um, Dr. Tovship has anything to say about that, yeah, but that no, was kind of I'm, my experience. I, I would love to hear that too, because that seems that seems counterintuitive to, to everything I've been told, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. It's counterintuitive. I mean, there's a whole body of research. I can't say it's like, I know it all off the back of my hand, but there's more and more research that has come out that has actually shown the beneficial impact of regular exercise for sure for depression in terms of mood enhancing effects that are very biologically driven. And I know that people have been looking into this in terms of um, for anxiety too. I've been at uh, Sunnybrook Hospital and there's been some research done looking on the impact of that for individuals with symptoms of OCD and the impact that exercise can have. And, you know, there's nothing I can't imagine unless there's like a medical condition, right? I don't know what that would look like, but that would prevent me from talking to people about exercise. I mean, when we think about the pandemic too, um, what kept people in terms of some, you know, mental health um, impacts was exercise. I mean, everyone I think got really bored of walking <laughs> after a certain period of time, but it was something that people were doing to get out, to stay healthy. You could connect with people outside. Like there are all these amazing benefits. So I'm really taken aback to be mm -hmm. honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Me too. You're quite young. So I would <laughs> still think that in this day and age, um, very surprising for for a physician to say something like that. I always talk about the benefits of exercise. So yeah, then it's yeah, it's, a shame that was taken away from you too, because it can be a coping strategy. Running can be really helpful when we're doing it and for a little bit after too, right? So yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up depression because uh, you know, I I my anxiety led to depression. I, I at least I think it did. I, you know, yeah. it kind of it's kind of uh, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't matter at this point. But I mean, that happened to me because when I was anxious, probably similar to uh, Peg, I got into serious avoidance behavior. Um, and that turned to isolation and that turned to depression. Uh, what I'm wondering, Peg, is, is what, you know, with your avoidance behavior, what kind of effects did that have in you additional, additionally to, you know, your anxiety? That's a great question. Um... So a lot of my avoidance behavior was going in public places and places that were really enclosed. Um, I think I did have a bit of claustrophobia. I hated being in closed spaces, like movie theaters were not a go for me. Mm -hmm. um, anywhere where I thought I could not escape fast, like mm -hmm. restaurants as well, things like that. And um, looking back, I realized that I feel like I lost so much um, of my childhood experiences, you know, that's an age where we're making friends. We're really learning to have social connections. We're learning lots of different things at school and on field trips that I didn't necessarily always take part in. And so mm. I think, um, a lot of the avoidance behavior, not only reinforced, uh, my anxiety, um, but also it, you know, it robbed me of some pretty, uh, you know, big experiences in my childhood and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty sad to think when mm -hmm. I think about it now, um, because I'm an adventurous person, uh, by nature. And, um, it's, it's hard to think that 
what could have been if I had the the right resources and, and things like that. Yeah, and I certainly engage in that thought too because I I mean I've had I've had you know severe bouts of anxiety and depression throughout my life, the most recent one last year, um, and I for sure I can relate with you on that FOMO, you know, that the mm -hmm. stuff that I missed out on, uh, and you know I so what I I mean just to let you know what I started doing is I started thinking about how this condition can serve me in a positive way and what positive things have come out of me having anxiety. And depression and and one of the things i really felt was you know it, in my experience and you can tell me um you know or, or maybe uh, marlene can let me know um i used it i of course when when anxiety is present there's a lot in my case and in a lot of people there's rumination there's thinking wondering yeah. what's causing it what is it and and it's so easy to go down all the wrong paths that way um but but yeah i'm wondering within that you know within that, you know, going inward like that, how, how that, um, yeah, it just, how, how it affects, or what, what I want, what it's going to say is, is that I, through that rumination, through that turning inward, I use that as to my advantage in terms of I, okay. Yeah. I, I missed a lot of stuff, but I know more about myself than a lot of people do. And I feel like that's a real plus as well. I'm wondering if you experienced that kind of thing, Marlene, in your, in your practice or in dealing with, with that, that kind of, you know, this huge chunk of your life gone missing. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen that reported by so many individuals and it's so hard because, you know, sometimes when, when I was at Sunnybrook in the residential treatment program there for, for OCD, we would see individuals who had gone through many other kinds of treatments. That's really how they kind of ended up in a, in a residential treatment center. And that's something that even as people would get better, they would talk about this idea of like time lost, you know, and their mm -hmm. peers being at certain like milestones that they're not out and not being able to get back um, that those kind of opportunities in a sense, or just knowing that they're a little bit off track, mm -hmm. you know, and it's so important, I think at that point to also be able to look forward, like to say, okay, totally, we need to like grieve that um but now what you know because we would sometimes see people and i've seen it in my pr private practice that i do and it's almost this idea of like how can i get better because then what was the last like 30 years about if i let go of um what it is you know the anxiety or the rumination or the review like how do i let go of that what was the point of me doing that all these years and it's like well what do we want our lives to be right now right mm -hmm. how do we kind of move forward and be able to see getting better is a real opportunity to move towards things that matter to you and that are important to you but especially because like we were saying at the beginning anxiety can hit when we're in those like formative, you know, developmental years that we want to be with friends and we want to experience things and get autonomy and agency from our parents and anxiety can really keep us stuck and not feel like we can actually kind of grow up in the way that we want to and do the things that we want to. So I think lives definitely get very interrupted, unfortunately, by, by anxiety. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, uh, sort of seeing our peers, moving forward in what we consider to be a normal, healthy way. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I found that that what really helped me with that was being transparent with a few of my peers who were who are willing to help. You know, I, I had friends that and I don't begrudge them who kind of didn't understand and, and kind of moved off for a while. And then I had a couple of friends mm -hmm. that really stuck with me. And I really feel it's important to find that, you know, that kind of support. Uh, uh, Pega, do you have you found that kind of support within your peers? 
I have. Um, I've been very fortunate. Once I started sharing, um, you know, my story with some of my friends, I was so surprised that they had so many similar experiences. Hmm. And that was really important for me because I realized like it's so much more common, I think, than, um, you know, we think in society. And when I started talking about it and I started talking about the mind shift CBT groups, I had so many friends who were actually interested. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really nice to feel supported and understood when for a great part of my life, I didn't even know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So it was that was a huge um, it was a huge uh, benefit for me. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to move to, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Mindshift here in the group stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I found one of the most helpful type I've taken, um, you name it, kind of therapy and I've tried it just about everything, acupuncture, you name it. It's right. Like, there's a there's a laundry list. Uh, and I, I feel like that was all the process of finding out what actually works for me. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you guys have both one's a counselor, one's been in counseling. Um, I found incredible benefit from um, group counsel uh, or group mm -hmm. group group work. And uh, I'd like to ask both of you, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on group and, and how do you, how come you feel like this is such an effective treatment for for people with dealing with anxiety? Maybe, maybe Marlene can go first. We can hear Pegasus. Sure, absolutely. And I run, I've run so many groups um, as a professional. And I think they give you two things that are very important. There's one kind of part of the group, which is like the delivery of, I do a lot of CBT work. So it's the delivery of like content and skills. And, mm -hmm. um, and that could be lovely, of course, to be able to receive from, from a professional. But the other piece is the connection with other people who have the same lived experience as you, that a professional cannot impart in the same yeah, way. Yeah. Um, whether you've had it or have not, it's really something that moves away from your professional delivery. Um, mm -hmm. So you're able to get that very openly and transparently with other members in the group. And there's like this dynamic, especially in closed groups, which tend to be um, what I run now, where people kind of move through a group together for eight weeks, 12 weeks, mm -hmm. you know, know each other and they get to hear each other's stories and they can also create I think a lot of perspective on what you're experiencing from an anxiety perspective so it can either be like wow they have like the exact same um, symptoms as me or the same worries as me and that's like amazing to hear from someone else or you can also hear someone else's anxiety and story and be like oh that's interesting like that's not something that I worry about I don't focus on that and how interesting that anxiety can come up in all these kind of different formats, right? So mm -hmm. I think the power of the group, which is like a long kind of documented um, research phenomenon, is extremely, extremely beneficial. And it's nothing you can get from facilitators in a group. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes people still hesitate very understandably to be in groups. And we really try to sell them with the idea that, you know, you're going to get this amazing connection from people and sometimes people meet in groups and they continue to support each other long after groups mm -hmm. have finished. So I can't say nothing about how good I think groups are. Um, and lastly, just from a research perspective, they are just as effective um, as individual therapy. So we have a lot of confidence when we carry out um, treatment in a group that we are delivering the same kind of, you know, effective treatment and therapy. So yeah, okay, I'll let you take it away with all well, your like, before she <laughs> yeah. starts. I just yeah. want to let you know, like, I, yeah, to, before we flip it over to Pega, because my, my my group experience is really unique in the sense that I live on a really small island out here in British Columbia. Oh wow! You know, and so when I walked into my first group, it was different. In the fact that I knew literally everybody in the room. And, and I'm not joking. 
I knew everybody mm-hmm. in the room and they all knew that me. And, and, yeah, it, well, it is, but you want to know what? It really helped in a way because what it showed me is it showed me that I saw all these people that I perceived as functioning in society really well, all of a sudden like me and, and having that veil come off really helped me. So, so Pega, mm-hmm. like to describe to me what your first foray into group was like, how, how did that work for you? So basically my first experience was, you know, logging on onto a, a Zoom chat mm-hmm. um, and then uh, seeing the counselor and also, so I think we were about 10 people in the group, wow. eight right. to 10. And then I saw, you know, eight other uh, faces um, on my screen and, you know, the difference between seeing them the first time and seeing them during the last session, like it was, um, it was pretty crazy because they felt like a family in sort of way, like, um, yeah. Marlene was really, um, you know, she hit the nail on the head because there was the benefit of um, having the actual content obviously was very helpful, but then forming relationships with other people who are going um, and having similar experiences to you or hearing how their story differs just broadens um, your horizons and it Mm -hmm. makes you realize and appreciate how diverse everybody's experiences are with anxiety. Um, And and it's so helpful to hear how other people deal with it because they might have, you know, strategies that you haven't even thought of. Um, and it just makes you feel so much more, uh, I want to say at home in a way, because they get it. You don't have to, you don't have to explain it. They understand. And, and that's a feeling that I think I was chasing for like half my life, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the fundamental that to me, that is one of the fundamental messages uh, for anybody experiencing anxiety is the fact that you're not alone because it can be so isolating. And even when you're sitting one-on-one with a counselor, you're, you know, with me, it's not like I'm thinking actively I'm not alone, but it's not the same as all of a sudden being, you know, in, in a room or, or virtually with eight other people experiencing the same thing to, you know, with different, you know, different kind of um, symptoms going on. So that, yeah, I feel like the group has been very valuable in terms of that one piece that I think everybody needs to know is that you're not alone. I think I wish everybody could see the statistics and everybody could know when they're standing on a crowded street corner or when they're sitting in a classroom that there's a pretty high percentage of people that have anxiety and there's a pretty high percentage of people that are have debilitating anxiety. But we need to know that. And, and I think that's what's mm-hmm. great with group. Um, outside of that, like, you know, what I'm wondering, and, and I'll ask Marlene, um, what kind of coping mechanisms do you you know, do you find are kind of really helpful for people who are, you know, first dealing with anxiety or trying to maintain, you know, an anxiety condition? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, as I was saying, I come very much from a, a CBT cognitive behavior therapy background, which is very um, aligned with um, Anxiety Canada and MindShift app. Because I, I love CBT too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, which is really <laughs> wonderful. So, you know, when we think about seeing individuals with any kind of anxiety, behavioral strategies can often be a really good way to start because there's often, as you've both been saying, a lot of avoidance, right? So it's really kind of jumping in, supporting people to be able to do what we call like exposure therapy. Um, I work a lot with individuals with OCD. So we do a lot of what's called exposure and response prevention work. Mm -hmm. And there's a piece of it of learning that your anxiety at times can come down with repeated exposure to something that has been triggering in the past. Um, But it's also putting on what we think of as like a bit of a values lens. And that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, where it's like, how do we want to start doing things 
that are of value to us. So sometimes it's not just doing something that makes me uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable, but what do I want to get back in my life? What am I avoiding, you know, starting to see friends again, starting to go to work again, those kind of big bucket things. And how do we look mm -hmm. at our values and all the things we're avoiding that align with our values? I find that's a really helpful way for people to be able to start engaging in therapy, because then it's like, you're getting something back. It's motivating to do those things. Um, in addition, I guess, to behavioral strategies, I do a lot of a lot of cognitive therapy work. So we want to be able to look at some of those negative or anxious thoughts that we have. We want to be able to challenge them, balance them out. Um, and then I think aside from that, you know, not when we're doing exposure work, but things like, you know, relaxation, mindfulness, all those things can be very important, right? They serve different purposes, uh, relaxation strategies versus just being present in the moment in a non-judgmental way. But those are all things that I like to integrate in um, to the anxiety work that I do. And I think all those different skill sets really serve a nice purpose for people when they are struggling. So it's kind of seeing where people are at and what they're presenting with and kind of where I would want to get started. Yeah, I love that idea. And I hadn't really heard that. It's a novel idea to me about kind of looking at the things in your life that you want to start reclaiming. Mm -hmm. um, I, I never looked at that because then it gives you, you know, definitive goals. Uh, yes, in terms of yeah. in terms of like, you know, those those typical, I, I shouldn't call them typical, but those strategies, you know, you hear the good sleep hygiene, good diet, exercise, relaxation, all those kind of mindfulness, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, when I first would get into a real, you know, desperate situation, I would throw everything at it, like you name it, I would have a call sheet. So the point, so it's the point that my whole day is basically dominated by dealing with my anxiety. And I'm not doing anything but, you know, and so I'm wondering with uh, Pega, so you, you know, you do group. Um, so, oh, so basically, let me finish. So what I did was I basically just started doing two or three at a time and they would naturally shed if I wasn't doing them. I tried meditating. I can't. I tried journaling. I can't. Um, I can definitely catch thoughts. You know, I definitely like exercise. There's things like that. So Pega, with you, um, in addition to your group, what kind of, of those sort of more traditional um, techniques did you did you incorporate or do you incorporate and, and kind of what works for you and what doesn't work for you? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that has stayed with me my whole life is being involved in sports and physical activity and being outside in nature. I found um, those things to be so therapeutic. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I didn't listen to the doctor when she told me to stop running. Okay. Um, I kept running. <laughs> so um, that's definitely one of the things that stayed with me basically throughout my whole journey was um, just having a exercise routine, being involved in sports. Um, and it was also a way to force myself to be kind of in a community and a social setting. Um, so that was great. Um, and then some of the things that really worked for me that I learned through um, group was uh, this exercise of balancing your thoughts. So catching thoughts that are very intrusive. They, um, yeah. I think we call them hot spot, hot thoughts mm -hmm. because they immediately evoke um, such a strong emotional response and kind of catching those thoughts and then working through them in a really systematic way, you know, identifying um, the, I can't remember what they were called, but identifying the thinking trap. There it is. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Catastrophization, um, fortune telling. Generalization. Yeah. General, yeah, yeah, all, all those. Of yeah, those. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's seven, then, seven or eight, depending on where you're looking. Yeah. I actually had them printed out <laughs> and uh, on my wall for a long time. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> you need them. They're good for reference. For yeah. Sure. yeah. 
So yeah. And then balancing the thoughts. So trying to make it, um, a little bit more balanced and, uh, you know, p- perhaps introducing other perspectives that you haven't considered basically. Um, cause is, I, yeah. Is this something you would write down? Like, would you do, would you, cause there's charts, right? There's CBT charts for thoughts. Thought, frozen thoughts. Yeah. So did and you actually use a chart? Too. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 There was an app that we used in group and it had this all ready for you and you could choose the thinking traps and you could write your thoughts. So I did that for a long time. And honestly, if I find that something I'm having like a reoccurring thought, I still do it because mm-hmm. it's so helpful. Um, I think my issue with like those hot thoughts was that they happened so fast and my reaction was so automatic. I couldn't actually like consider it and see if it was, you know, um, really realistic. It just happened and it was so fast. And Mm -hmm. this really helped me like actually consider what the thought was saying to me um, and how I was reacting to it and how I could um, perhaps introduce another perspective um, that would make it uh, way less intrusive to my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Negative. Those thinking traps are are quite, for me, from my perspective, in terms of CBT, are quite core to the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a hard time doing the writing down. And, and you're gathering by now that I'm lazy when it comes to journaling and writing things down. I don't know if it's lazy or whatever. So I started by just catching a negative thought, not even identifying it, not trying to pick it apart, just catch it one at a time as it happened. I'd have one. If one happened five seconds later, I'd go, there's a negative thought. If one happened two hours later, I'd say there's a negative thought. And then I progressed into the thinking traps from there. Um, but uh, Dr. Tobe Schiff, do you, what kind of ways do you suggest in terms of, you know, because negative thinking and thinking traps are so core, what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, ways do you suggest people deal with these thoughts? Because our brain's a crazy thing. Our brain is a crazy machine. Um, what, what, what are your strategies in terms of incorporating uh, the thinking traps uh, or working with them? Very similar to what you are both describing in terms of that idea of like increased level of awareness, being able to notice the thoughts, catch the thoughts, move towards kind of labeling what they might be in terms of those thinking traps. And then that idea of, you know, looking at them for different perspectives to be able to balance them out, right? Because we're not trying to replace, you know, bad thoughts or negative thoughts with good thoughts. We're really trying to honor um, what it is about that thought that feels quite real and what we might have evidence for. But we also want to look at the other perspective. What do we have evidence for that goes against the evidence against that thought, right? Mm-hmm. And that really gives you the kind of alternate, alternative or balanced thought. Um, and I think something else is that idea of like, we want to not be afraid of our thoughts, right? We want to really learn that like thoughts are just thoughts and really accept that because we all have, you know, I don't know, I never know how many, but I don't know, thousands of thoughts a day. It's like um, millions, yes. Millions of <laughs> thoughts a day, exactly. And most of them kind of come in and out, even as we're all talking to each other right now, we're thinking, well, what am I going to do after? What am I mm-hmm. going to do tonight? Mm-hmm. Our mind is going everywhere, right? So, but those thoughts aren't, they're not bothersome. They're just thoughts that aren't um, those hot thoughts, right? That are like emotionally laden. So it's really also knowing that a thought is a thought is a thought. 
-hmm. know, whether it feels like it means that something catastrophic is going to happen or whether it's just about me making a decision about what I'm going to have for dinner, they're still actually the same thing. So how do we kind of lean in um, to some of those thoughts that can cause us more distress and see them, if you will, for what they are? So that's a conversation that I tend to have with people a lot um, in the beginning from a more psychoeducation perspective and also as we continue because I think it's a lot sometimes for all of us to wrap our head around because if there's a thought in our brains that feels like very important it's hard to say I'm not going to kind of hook into that right so how Mm -hmm. do we unhook from thoughts and shift away to things that feel like they're actually more deserving of our attention so that's sort of a conversation too yeah ca- yeah ca- catching those thoughts I-, I know and that's to, to me the hard thing about those you know when it, when i was learning about them um well i've heard them referred to as ants automatic negative thoughts um, <laughs> and, and uh and so yeah it's to me it's kind of like the, you know you talk about that scroll in your head of thoughts i just find it i think it's really important that you, it's it can be like good thought good thought good th- good thought neutral thought good thought neutral thought neutral thought, bad thought because and it, and it's hard to even recognize those negative thoughts when they're creeping in, but it's so important, I think, in, in breaking that cycle and putting them into context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I I could literally talk all day um, with you guys. This has been, I, I would say this has been a really successful venture having both of you to talk to. I, I really value what you're doing and, and Pega with you, you know, being an advocate um, it's incredibly helpful. You know, you talk about your parents not really knowing what to do. Um, if and when you decide to have children, um, you're you're breaking the cycle. And, and I've done the same with my kids who are 17 and 20 now. And uh, and and uh, Dr. Tobshif, I really appreciate the expertise you've brought to this. Uh, it, oh, it's thank been you. oh, it's been here. so helpful. So uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me. And um, I, I hope we can do this again. I would love to talk to you guys again in the future. I'm sure we'll figure something out. And because it sounds like we could talk for for hours and hours. Sounds great. Thank you for joining <laughs> yeah, me. It was a great experience. Thank you so much. Okay, awesome. Take so, care. Take care. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to our anxiety stories. If you'd like to support this podcast or Anxiety Canada, go to anxietycanada.com.